I always come back to my grandfather's porch in New Delhi, where he first talked to me about Dharma and described it as like this inner flame inside of you. And the way that I sort of see this inner flame now is that either it's going to burn you up inside or it's going to light up the world around you, right? But you get to choose, but I don't think anybody really escapes that choice. And so as we talk about things like purpose and meaning, it can be sometimes tempting to see them as like these really flowery, nice sort of things. But I think the truth is that it can hurt like hell when you've got this thing inside of you that's not being expressed. It can eat away. And I think what it means to live a good life is really to, in some small way, start to bring that out so that you can start to light up the things that are outside of you. So have you ever achieved a long-sought goal only to feel oddly empty inside, as if something was still missing? In today's world, it's all too easy to get caught up in chasing superficial markers of success, wealth, status, fame, thinking that they will make us happy. But what if that formula is actually backwards? What if real joy and fulfillment can only be found by first discovering and expressing our unique inner essence, our dharma. My guest today, Sunil Gupta, knows that feeling all too well. After founding and selling a successful health tech startup, he realized that checking off those outer boxes of achievement failed to bring lasting inner satisfaction. He was outwardly successful, but inwardly empty. So he turned to teachings and stories that he'd heard often as a child, but wanted nothing to do with back then. Focusing on an ancient Hindu concept called Dharma, or what he describes as the sacred duty to express one's inner essence through outer work, he began to rediscover meaning and purpose and a sense of calling. And this journey led him to uncover everyday paths to integrate our ambitions with what truly matters more deeply down inside. As an author and visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School, Sunil studies the most extraordinary people on the planet to help discover and share simple, actionable habits that lift our performance and deepen our sense of purpose. His work has been featured everywhere from CNBC to TED to the New York Times. In our conversation, he shares insights from his newest book, Everyday Dharma, and reveals really practical ways that we can honor our inner fire through the work that we do each day, even within the duties and constraints of everyday life that, without deeper inquiry, would make it seem difficult, if not impossible. How can we express our essence more fully through our work, our relationships, our community? What simple habits can help us live with a deeper sense of meaning and purpose day to day? These are some of the questions that we explore. And Sunil offers an abundance of powerful tools and strategies and ideas to help you discover and live your calling. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Curious to dive into so many points along your journey. Um, so many of the ideas from the new book. Um, there's some interesting parallels, I think. And you have been existing in, it sounds like a, having a foot in, in different worlds, a world of business, a world of startups, the world of well-being, but also different notions of well-being, Western well-being, Eastern well-being. And how do these worlds do the dance and come together? I know in the business side of things, founded two companies, as you've described and told the story, those did not have the exits or the ends that you wanted, but then end up founding a third company that does very well, gets acquired on the surface from the outside looking in. This is the dream, right? This is what everybody, you know, especially when you're founding companies, you're all in, you're working generally 24 seven. Um, this is your life. And when you're building something that gets acquired, especially by a company that is in a position to continue to do really extraordinary and good work with what you started from the outside, it really looks like, well, this is everything. Like this is what you work for. And yet the way you describe it, that's not what your internal experience was like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I couldn't name it at the time, but now I sort of have looked to the research and, and have found Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar's work. And, you know, what Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar describes this as is the arrival fallacy. And the arrival fallacy is this notion that one day we're going to hit this threshold where we have accumulated enough wealth, enough enough status, enough achievement, enough of a bio where all of a sudden we're going to we're going to feel fulfilled. We're going to feel this sense of lasting happiness. And of course, what ends up happening is that every time we get to a goalpost, it moves again, right? And again and again. And that happens at sort of in, in big moments, but it also happens in these small moments as well. You know, that we want to we want to get the next client, the next deal, the next thing. And it leads to these temporary moments of satisfaction. And then all of a sudden we're kind of back to where we were before. And for me, I felt like after having failed twice at, at starting companies, you know, having those have to be like wound down that once I actually got something that worked, 
it was going to reach, I was going to have like, you know, this feeling of lasting fulfillment. It was all going to have been worth it. And then I get it. And sure, it is a beautiful moment when it happens, right? We celebrate with the team and, and, and my wife and I go, I remember we go to a really, really nice dinner. You know, we'd been eating like very, very basic food for those years. And like, we were like explorers on a really nice dinner in the city. And, but then like literally within a few weeks, I, I kind of went back to a base state where I was kind of like, all right, now like what's next and what's next after that. And, you know, I think that what I didn't realize at the time, but I kind of realize now is that this sense of emptiness that I think so many of us feel right now, I think it stems a lot from this. It stems a lot from this idea that we're, we're trying to hit these outside achievements, but realizing that this outside achievement isn't necessarily leading us to inner satisfaction. So then like, what is it that we do? What's the answer to that? Is it to give up our ambition? Because I certainly don't want to do that. And I don't think other people do as well. I like, I want to achieve things. I want to do things. But at the same time, I don't want to be on this sort of hedonic treadmill where none of it is actually leading to happiness. That is what kind of led me back to this, this ancient philosophy of Dharma. Because as it turns out, this trade-off of ambition and joy has been something that's, you know, existed for millennia, right? And there have been different bodies and different ways of sort of, you know, dealing with this and offering tactics and really practical methods. Dharma for me was the practice of my ancestors. And it was something that I completely rejected. As an Indian kid growing up in the United States, I wanted to have nothing to do with Eastern philosophy. Like I wanted to be as white and as American as I possibly could. I'd literally put like white baby powder on my face at times before I went to school to try to fit in a little bit more. But when I got to a point in my life when I felt completely burnt out, completely lost the way that I think a lot of people feel right now, that's when I started to go back to these, this philosophy that's really kind of existed for thousands of years and helped a lot of people through, I think, a very, very similar predicament, which is how do I start to find meaning in the work that I do? Yeah. And that's certainly a place that so many people have found themselves over the last three years. I think, you know, your case was exiting a company and realizing I did all the things, I checked all the boxes, and I don't feel the way that I thought I would feel. But for so many others, the last three years have shown them that, wow, I've actually devoted 10, 15, 20, 25 years of my life to a particular path and a particular set of expectations. And maybe I've checked most, if not all, of the boxes that I was working towards. And yet I'm finding myself in this place where it's not giving me Everything that I thought I would feel, you know, Dan Gilbert wrote this great book that kind of started out the, uh, the happiness book lineage, you know, a chunk of years back called mm-hmm. Stumbling on Happiness, mm-hmm. where he described something he called effective forecasting, which is our ability to actually predict how we think we'll feel in some future. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that and him describing the research that shows we are awful at actually trying to predict how we think we'll feel in a certain future state. In fact, he showed the research says we would get a more accurate answer if we found somebody that was 20 years older and asked them how they felt than if we actually just tried to figure it out for ourselves. I'm curious what you think is happening in our wiring that leads to such a big disconnect between our ability to actually figure out how something will make us feel and to actually feel it. The way I sort of describe this in the book that has been an effective I think, model for me is really the difference between outer success and inner success. Mm. So if we think about outer success as wealth and status and achievement, 
then inner success is joy and its meaning and its purpose, right? And the squishy, what we might, might consider come up one of the squishier things. And the way that I have sort of gone wrong in my career um, and in my life has been almost putting these two things at battle with one another. You know, there are times in my life where I'm like, I'm going to optimize for outer success. And then I burn out and I'm like, well, I'm just going to optimize for inner success. And what that means for me is I want to like, you know, I want to kind of like distance myself from work or I want to start to like really kind of, you know, quietly quit, even though that term wasn't even around back then, but I've certainly done that. Um, But I play these two things off of one another. Whereas I think we can have both, but I think the misperception that I had, the fundamental thing that I got wrong is in believing that somehow outer success is going to lead to inner success, that somehow I'm going to get enough of that, that I'm going to feel this feeling inside. It never worked that way. So again, is the answer then to renounce outer success? I I don't think so. But I think the answer though, can be to reverse the flow, to start with what really like matters to you, or at least expressing what matters to you through what it is that you do, right? And this alignment of who you are with what you do, sometimes we feel like we have to like abandon our life entirely in order to transform the way we live. What I hope this book shows more than anything else is really the stories of you know, the grocery store clerks, the plumbers, the nurses, the people who were, you know, in positions where they couldn't necessarily quit their job. They couldn't abandon their salary. They had people who were relying on them, but they still found little ways to start living their dharma. And and it may be worth like defining what dharma is. Yeah, let's do that. Dharma is one of those words where, you know, it does get tossed around sometimes and it can mean different things to different people. If you look at like the definition of Dharma in the Bhagavad Gita, which was like one of the first places to really put it into contemporary sort of thinking, they define it as, as your sacred duty, right? And then the question is duty to what? Duty to whom? And, you know, the way my grandfather really described this to me is it's a duty to the fire burning inside of you. He called this your essence, right? You've got something inside of you that really wants to get out. We all do. And then the question is, how do you express that? When you're expressing your essence, you feel alive. You feel creative. You feel lit up. And when you're not, you can feel lost. You can feel really depleted, you know? And I think so many of us are feeling that way right now. You know, the number one, for a lot of us, for many of us, the studies show the number one determiner of our mental health is actually our job. It's, it's actually what we do each day. And yet the vast majority of us aren't actually enjoying our work. And that's a big problem. The, the purpose of the book is really about how do we start to find our dharma again? And then I think more importantly, how do we live it when we are in a life where we have lots of other duties, when we have aging parents, when we have kids to take care of, we have bills to pay, we have back-to-back meetings. How do we live our dharma then? Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting question. And I love that you focus on not extracting yourself from the real world in order to actually try and figure this thing out. You know, it's, I know a lot of the references that you draw from Dharma come out of some Hindu traditions. I look at Buddhism also, and I always thought it was fascinating to me that in Buddhism, there are two distinct paths that are defined. There's the monastic path for those Mm -hmm. who do want to withdraw themselves from everyday life, but there's also a householder path. There's a very specified way to say, no, actually, for many of you, maybe most of you, like the path is to stay in the real world, to stay you know, with, the, with the daily duties, with the family, with the work. 
But here's a way that you can do that too. And there's a yeah. really interesting overlap between that and the ideas that you share. Interesting that you bring up the Bhagavad Gita also, like the story of Arjuna, where it, it's really having a conversation with God about like, there's this thing that I feel like I have to do, but I don't want to do it. And, and this involves, you know, like great battles and violence, including towards like people that you know, this particular person cares about. And yet it's profound in that the conversation leads him to effectively say, and yet still, this is why I'm here. Like, this is my Dharma. And this is what I have to do. Even if there are so many things inside of me that are saying, I don't want to do this. And the fact that that scripture, that text, really an epic poem was written so long ago and is so relevant to everyday life today. It's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the script that I, I grew up reading and always struggle with it because it does take place on a battlefield. And I'm like, wait a second, we're supposed to be sort of peace loving, you know? And like, I grew up, most of my family is vegetarian. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't harm a thing. Like, and, and, and yet there's this pretty gory sort of battle taking place what I guess I, I mean, there's so many different interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. The one that gives me sort of the most comfort, at least, is is that, that the battle is really a symbol and a metaphor for what's happening inside of you, right? It's you being torn for these different parts of you. And, and, and the parts that are being torn is, is a sense of duty and responsibility and how it balances out with Dharma. That's where it gets really, really important for me because sometimes you mistake something like Dharma or even the word purpose with what you do. And Dharma is not what you do. It is who you are. And it's how who you are gets expressed through what you do. So jobs for us, you know, we can kind of identify with them. That's who I am. But no, your job is actually a vehicle, a way for you to start expressing a little bit more of, of who you are. One of the stories in the book that, you know, I've been sort of I think attracted to the most because it's, it's, you know, very, I think relevant to where we are right now is a nurse named Karen who is like wishes that she could have rewound the clock and pursued her path as a writer, right? Like that's what she wanted to do. But when she was in college, her parents really pushed her hard to go into medicine. So she goes down the nursing path and becomes pretty successful as a nurse, but there's always that inner fire that never got expressed, that never was able to come out. But the way that she starts to express it is through patient paperwork. So she finds a way to start writing. Like most nurses would just type out the clinical details, like here are the bios, here are the measurements, and, and then hit print. Karen started to use that as an opportunity to really like express this essence of, as a writer. And she would write about who the patient was, who do they love, what do they love to do, who do they care about. And she'd almost write these like really beautiful like mini novels for each patient. And these this paperwork, this mundane paperwork started to get passed around the hospital from doctors to nurses because it reminded them of their the humanity of, of what they did. So all of a sudden, she is coming alive. She Her title, by the way, has not changed at all. Mm. She is still a nurse inside a hospital, but every day she is now bringing the spirit of being a writer to her job. I love that story. Um, I think also because it really illuminates how often we don't understand that there may be paths available to not just discover what this thing is inside of us, but also to let it out without having to just wholesale change course to cause, you know, like major disruptions and blow up what, you know, everything that we built up until the state, which as you said earlier, a lot of people can't for purely practical reasons. You know, like we're supporting families, you have responses, whatever it may be. 
you describe what you call, uh, you, you sort of describe as th- these four different chisels to help, you know, it's almost like you're, you're chiseling away that which hides the essence. Walk me through these because I think they're really powerful for our listeners. Yeah. You know, so one of the, the intimidating things I think about concepts like Dharma, the reason that it took me so long to kind of circle back to this, this thing that I had learned as a kid and, is because it can feel like it's a lot of work, right? Like it can feel sometimes if you're, if you're overwhelmed, it can sometimes feel like understanding your purpose or your meaning is like one more thing to add to the list, right? The comfort for me came from this idea that Dharma isn't actually something that you need to go out on a big search and find. It is already something that is within you. If you're listening right now, I can guarantee that you have been in touch with your essence. You've been in touch with your Dharma before. How long ago that was, it depends, but it could have been when you were a kid, it could have been last week, but we are in touch in some way with our dharma in our lives. Michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say, the sculpture is already inside. All I need to do is chisel away the layers that have hidden it. And dharma is very much the same way. It's something that's already inside of you. And sometimes to chisel away, we can do this through these simple practices. And there are lots and lots of ways to, to chisel away, but I included four sort of paths that really have helped me in, in my journey. And, you know, the first, the first path is really the, the, what I call the bright spots chisel. What I mean by that is if you look at sort of your day and you look at your work right now, whatever that is for you, whether it's work at a job or in a community, you look at your job, starting to identify the brightest moments of your work, even if they're temporary and fleeting, can be a very powerful thing. When I work with teams and I work with leaders who seem to be burnt out, a lot of them will come to me and say, look, I'm miserable right now. I don't like what I'm doing. And one of the first things I will do is, is challenge them to, to, to look at what are the bright moments, though, of your day. And, and almost always, people can identify those. They might be small, they might be fleeting, but they're there, right? And those can actually be really, I think, I think very empowering portals for us to get a glimpse of, okay, that is something that's probably tied to my essence. That's probably something that's tied to my dharma. Like For me, for example, I followed the crowd into tech. Tech is not an industry I'm truly passionate about. I can say that now. There was a while where I would fake like I was, but I'm not. And and I spent over a decade working in Silicon Valley because that's what all of like the cool kids seem to be doing, moving to Silicon Valley, working in tech, working in startups. And that's what I did. And I followed the crowd, but it wasn't my dharma. And at a certain point in time, I felt so disconnected from who I was But with the bright spots, what I started to identify was like, there were these little moments in the day when I was really engaging with storytelling that I really liked. When I was hearing a customer story, I could feel myself come alive. When I was sharing a story with a team member, whether an investor, I could feel myself coming alive. And that's to me, started to get me to the point of, okay, I need to start spending more time with this thing. That's when I started to take 15 minutes in the morning before my job started. And I just started to write in a blank journal, right? And that those lines, while most of them went in the waste bin because they were terrible, there were little pearls and those little pearls started to form paragraphs and eventually articles and, and then eventually books. And that was my path into writing. And that all came from the bright spots of a job that I didn't really like. So that's number one. Number two is, is what I call the possibility chisel. And what I mean by that is like, we can sometimes sort of feel like once we sort of identify an essence or identify a thing that we love, we can go almost like very quickly into, I should go do this then, right? Mm -hmm. So for me with storytelling, I was like, oh, I should go be a writer right away. 
one of the things I've learned to do is to resist that temptation and start to like then expand into all the possibilities that are out there. So there's a project manager named Mila that I talk about in the book who was working inside a big company and realized that she really wanted to be a teacher. Like she really wanted to be a teacher, but she couldn't afford to necessarily go do that because she had a family. They relied on her salary. They relied on her healthcare insurance and she didn't have the financial flexibility to quit her job and go do that. So she felt trapped. And then one day a mentor asked her like a really specific question, powerful, very simple question. She says, what is it specifically about being a teacher that makes you come alive, right? What is it specifically? And as Mila started to get into the specifics, like really like take a hard look at that question, she was able to go beneath the title of teacher and into what she loves about teaching, right? And when she really went to that place, what she realized is she just loves helping people grow. Like that's her essence, right? And yeah, teaching was one way to express that essence, but there were many others as well. And that's where we get into this possibility chisel, which is like, what are all the other possibilities that you can express this thing that you feel like you can only express maybe through this one dream job? Usually when people come to me and say, look, I'm stuck in a place, but I really wish I was that. I'd say, well, okay, describe that dream job for me. Let's get to the essence of what you love about that dream job. Go beneath the title, go beneath the salary. Let's get into the day-to-day. What do you really love? And then once we get to that place, what are the other possibilities out there for expressing that. One great way to, I think, expose yourself to these possibilities that I love, this is going to sound strange, is what I call the magazine aisle walk, right? Which is literally like when I go to a magazine aisle, I love it so much because it's basically like the collective dharma of our planet in one place. Mm-hmm. Like you, like it's and it's everything, right? It's magazines about like goats and, and idiosyncratic things, but it's also very empowering because like it means this thing inside of you, however unique it is. Like it, like if you've got magazines about goats, like you can still express that, right? And so what I like to do is I like to go down this magazine aisle and I like to just pull magazines off the rack that are really calling my name, and I try to turn off the part of my brain that's telling me you should grab something. And I try to really stay true to like, what do I really like? What's really captivating me? Like I know being somebody who writes for business audiences, I should probably read the Harvard Business Review, but I don't want to read the Harvard Business Review. Like I'm not, I'm not that interested in it. What I'm more interested in is reading articles about like spirituality and about wellness. You know, I, I pick up Men's Health Magazine. I'll pick up anything that I see that has like Ram Das in it. I'll pick up anything with like Ryan Holiday and Maria Popova, like people who I think are really great spiritual writers, I will pick up. But that to me is a great way of really kind of coming back to yourself, walking down a magazine aisle and picking up the covers that are going to pull your name. The third chisel is um, what I call the Dharma deck chisel, which is like as you're starting to come up with ideas, ways of like, you know, expressing your essence you know, the reality starts to set in that you can't do them all, right? Probably not. Like you can do anything, but you can't necessarily do everything, at least not all at once. What I found very like empowering is to be able to start writing each of the ideas that really captivate me on an index card. So on the front of it, I'll write down the idea. Like for example, start a podcast. When it's storytelling became clear, it was my essence. I had these like start a podcast, start giving speeches, start writing articles. Like there were all these ideas I had and I would write each one on an index card. And on the back of it, I would just write a, a sentence or two on like why I think that this is like captivating me. Why is it captivating my attention? And then once a week or so, I would sort this deck from top to bottom. 
right? So I would just take a quiet, I'd take a quiet walk or I'd, I'd go off and I'd leave my phone behind. And from top to bottom, I would sort them from the cards that were captivating me most went to the top, the cards that captivated me least went to the bottom. And what I realized over time is that one or two of those cards remained at the top of the pack, right? Like they, they were the ones who were just like persistently calling my name. And I knew that that's where I needed to go next. So that's the Dharma deck chisel. And the fourth is what I call a Picasso chisel, right? Then Picasso famously said, the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. I think that, you know, the crux of that wisdom is really to kind of ask yourself, what would I give away? What would I do for free, right? And that's not to say, by the way, that you need to go do your work for free or be uncompensated. But if you can answer that question, what would I do for free? That is almost a very direct lens into this thing that you care about so much that is going to free you from all the external validation of the world, right? And free you from the compensation that you have. And then the question is that, like, how do I now start to make a living from that thing, right? And I think that's just such a better path. It's such a more effective path than basically saying, what's going to pay me, right? Like pay me the big bucks and then trying to back into purpose, it's a little more direct to sort of say, all right, what would I do for free? And then how do I actually make a living from that? I have found that flip to be very effective for my life. I love that you have, you basically described four just incredibly accessible tools that anybody can basically say, okay, I can try this. I can try this. I can try this. I can try this. And it's all based on this fundamental assumption that this is a process of liberation, not transformation, that the thing that we're going after, it resides within me now and it always has. So I don't need to become or change into something else, which I think a lot of people perceive as a greater amount of effort. And there's a certain fear and a sense of grief that I have to leave behind, you know, like who I've always been, whereas a sense that, no, there's actually a thing that's always been a part of me, but it's obscured. And my work is simply to remove the things that are obscuring it and then center it and then really just give it some love in my life, in my work. Mm, Beautifully said. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000 
25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, the idea of revealing that also, and this can be something that somebody can stumble upon this fairly quickly, or this may take months, this may take years. You know, once you start to get a sense for it, and I completely agree with you, by the way, of the idea of not placing the filter of, but will this support me in the world first, but circling back to that because it stops you from thinking unconventionally about all the myriad of ways that this thing that you discover might actually be able to support you. But it also, I'm curious what your take is on this. My sense has always been, that your dharma, like using your, your sort of rubric here, may or may not actually be the thing that is going to pay your rent, cover mm-hmm. your mortgage. Mm. If it is, if you can figure out a way to actually center it on a level and you know uh, derive value from it on a level where other people will compensate you so that you actually can make it your main thing, that's fantastic. Yeah, But maybe it's not. But that doesn't mean that you just jettison it from your life. You know, maybe it's something that you're doing on the side. Maybe you're volunteering. Maybe you're a companion or a caretaker, and that is everything to you. But if you held up that filter, but will it be the main thing that earns my living? You'll deny the fact that it's real and important to you and just walk away from it. Yeah, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And one of the chapters in the book that has been most meaningful to me is this idea of bhakti. And bhakti is full-hearted devotion. But when we think about devotion to something, sometimes we can confuse devotion with time, right? We can say the more time we give to something, the more devoted we are to it. But what we miss sometimes is that it can be far better to be full-hearted with something than to be fully scheduled with something, right? The more heart that we can give 
to a person or to a craft or to our dharma matters a lot. You know, Toni Morrison was a single mom. She had two kids. She had a full-time job. But, you know, she realized that like writing was something that she had to do. Like she had to do it. She had to mother her children. She said, there were two priorities in my life. I had to mother my children and I had to write. The amount that she was writing was very little each day, but she treated it like a loving relationship. And, you know, my wife and I talk about this, like we have two kids. I, we have an 11 year old and a six year old. And at 630 in the morning, the house goes freaking berserk, Right. But my wife and I wake up just a little bit before that, and from 6.15 to 6.30 every morning, we have coffee together. We put our phones aside, and we just have a cup of coffee together. Look, We're completely giving each other the attention, you know, full attention, being loving with each other in, that, in those minutes that we have. And what we've realized over time is like that, more than anything else, has become the cornerstone of our relationship. Yeah, like every couple of years we get we get lucky and we get to go take a little trip together and and every once in a while we get date night in, but like that 15 minutes is really where it happens. And the same I think is true for our dharma, right? Having treating it like a loving relationship as opposed to I'm going to wait 3 months and then like take a week off and like go like be with it for a while. You wouldn't treat somebody that you love that way. You would want to stay connected to it in some way. So having these touchstones is is really really important. The other thing that I think is like, you know, to me as I was delving into more and more dharma stories and and what I started to realize is that if you look at people who are like so busy, the, the ones that are working like two or three jobs like and they're just like it's paycheck to paycheck. There's also a notion of how do we start to bring our dharma into our duties, right? And Karen, the, the nurse, is a good example of that. With, with the, but there's but there's so many others. I mean, like if you look at if you look at Eminem, for example, right? Kind of a wild example. But Eminem was like he was working in an assembly line. He was working in a factory, actually not too far away from where I grew up in Detroit. And you know, he was constantly looking. He was everything that was around him was grist for his mill, right? The sounds of metal clanking was grist for the mill of his music, right? And his music, he started to kind of bring into the factory as well. Like he, the beats and, and the ways that he would use his time at the factory to kind of come up with rhythms and rhymes. Like it was all sort of fitting together. And then there is a way to do that. One of my best friends, Rich, had this like really heartbreaking thing happen to him where he actually did do the dream. He moved to Italy and became a painter. And we were all like, wow, man, like you're, I'm, I'm in a consulting firm. Like I'm like, my soul is being sucked and you're living the dream. But his mom got sick and he had to come back to the States and, you know, his father had, had long passed and he became her primary caretaker and he made a vow that he was going to be that person. So he ends up getting a job at Trader Joe's. He's working 60, 70 hours a week. And basically his entire artist life like went by the wayside. He was like mixing and mingling with global artisans in Italy. And now he's like unpacking freight trucks. But he started to bring his dharma to his duties and his duties to his dharma. And the way that he did that was he started to look for little opportunities, even inside Trader Joe's, where he could start to paint for them, right? Like, like he noted, he would notice like certain walls were a little bit barren. He'd go to the manager and say, hey, what if I painted something for you here? And he, we could compensate it for that. And so he started to bring his dharma to his duties. And then he even started to bring his duties to his dharma. Like he would start to notice the way that like people looked inside the store. He would notice the shapes and objects. And he started to bring that back to his painting and to his studio. I think that we can... Again, the framework is that we have our duties 
and we have our dharma, right? And even just aligning those things just a little bit more, right? will make a huge, huge difference because what you're doing is bringing just a little bit more of who you are into what you do. And even if we move that one centimeter at a time, it liberates us. Yeah, I'd so agree with that. And often that feedback mechanism of Dharma to duty, duty to Dharma, often one provides, you know, it's this seamless thing where one provides the grist for the other, which then fuels the other. And it's, it creates this spiral yeah. Which it would seem on the surface, but you're dividing your time, you're fragmenting yourself. But really what's happening is you're figuring out how to use distinct blocks of time in a way where one complements the other, where one like nourishes the other and lets, lets the other one out. And, you know, and I, that example of your friend Trader Joe is, I think is, it, it's so fascinating on so many different levels, you know, fundamentally it's just, you're doing is painting a picture of possibility with all of these different examples also that says, this is real. This is possible even when life gets hard, even when circumstances change in the blink of an eye that you didn't see coming and you were living it one moment and now you're not, but there's a way to potentially get back to it, or at least a lot more than you think might be possible. Yeah, which also, you know, points out one of the topics you talk about um, is the notion of comfort and discomfort. Hmm. This is something that many of us spend our lives running from. <laughs> you know, it's like, give me the easy button for whatever it is, relationships, work, fitness, health, accomplishments. What's the fastest way to get from here to there? You know, like, what's the hack? And in fact, there's a certain value in not just meeting discomfort or adversity along the way or challenge, but also in realizing that it genuinely can contribute to the process of you feeling fully realized and fully expressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for me, I was one of those people who ran away from the discomfort. And I was one of those people who sort of assumed that if I started, if I could just find my purpose, I could just find my calling, then I would be free of this, the discomfort. And in some ways I found the opposite to be true because Difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. And when I was starting to actually live my dharma and express myself in storytelling and writing, the obstacles started to mount. But the difference being that like I was starting to view it under a different lens and that I was actually starting to find much more purpose in the day to day. And I was able to get through that. But more importantly, I think like this chapter that I call, it's called Upeka. And Upeka is this art of finding comfort in the discomfort. I was starting to get these practical tools that I could use in these moments of, of discomfort by studying the way that people have done this in the past. And the metaphor that I love, and it really stems from Viktor Frankl's work, which by the way, like for every chapter, it's an Eastern philosophy, an Eastern way of living that is really echoed in Western science. And in Upeka is definitely one of those chapters where Viktor Frankl, neurologist, Holocaust survivor, wrote a lot about sort of if what was the main thing that he learned from all of his research and all of the experiences that he had, trauma that he had. And, and what he said was that, you know, in between impulse and response is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom. Okay? So these impulses can be annoyances. It can be irritations. It can be bad emails. It can be somebody cutting you off on the road. And the way that we respond to that in between that impulse and, re and response is a space. And inside that space is our freedom. And I love that because I think it's the foundation for really everything. You know, if you don't have space between 
something that that bothers you and the way you respond to it, well, then you can't put any of the tools that you've learned into practice. You can listen to the podcast, you can read the self-help books, you can get the tools and the practices, but if you don't give yourself the space to really draw upon those, then you end up living a life where you're, you're, you're acting on your emotions too quickly, you're regretting things way too often, you're making decisions that you, that you wish you would have done things differently. Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese monk, you know, Nobel Prize winner, like, you know, he would surprise audiences when he would get up in front of like these, po- you get to the podium and he would say, I'm an angry man. And people would be like, what do you mean you're an angry man? You're like, you're like a symbol of peace. And he'd say, no, no, I just like anybody else. I have anger inside of me, a lot of anger inside of me. And, but what I've learned is that I can't remove those inner explosives, right? I can't like rid myself of the anger, but what you can do is you can lengthen the wick. You can lengthen the fuse, right? So when the fuse gets lit, there's some time, the length of the fuse before it actually hits the bomb. You can do things to lengthen that fuse. And ultimately, I think that that's the practice. We're not trying to get or shame these really real emotions. And I think particularly, you know, right now, there's a lot of reason why, why people might, might be angry at things. And I don't think it's the right thing to do to shame those emotions or try to push them out. But what I think we can do is we can lengthen the wick. And in this chapter, I talk about sort of what are these different practices? And some, some of them are very, very simple. So for example, for me, like having a home base that I can go to when something irritates me, you know, is really, really important. And for me, I like that home base to be physical, meaning I just like literally putting my hand on my chest, putting my hand over my heart and just tapping a couple of times is a way for me to find a little bit of space in that moment. I was talking to our mutual friend, Mitch Joel, about this. And he said that one thing he likes to do, <laughs> he likes to wiggle his toes, right? So it's something that no one would even notice. But if he's like in an irritating conversation, he'll literally wiggle his toes and that'll be a way for him to kind of come home base before he actually responds to the situation. But your home base can be anything. It can be a physical gesture. It can be something inside your mind as well. You might go back to like a, you know, for you, you live at the Rockies, you know, Jonathan. So it could be like you at your favorite spot, like on the trail, right? But some kind of mental image that lets you, that allows you to give that space before you actually react. That is one way that we can find some comfort in these really, really uncomfortable situations we find ourselves in. I so agree with that. And I love the notion also of the fact that we don't have to go and sit in mindfulness meditation for a half an hour. You know, you can, that we can create all these little mechanisms and little touchstones. Maybe nobody else knows that we're doing them. And yet it creates an anchor in us that, that literally just kind of says to us, okay, take a breath. You know, like create, expand the space is functionally what it's telling us to do. And trusting that, like, as that space expands, as we extend the wick, right, that um, we'll figure out a better way to respond rather than react in a way that's healthier, that's more constructive. And that also, circling back to like really the core of the conversation, lets us step into whatever it is that we're moving through, whatever the discomfort is, in a way that honors our Dharma that centers it rather than moves us further away from it, which I think is so often what the reactive mode does to us. I know it does for me. I know it does for me. And I, and I think, you know, for me, the distinction between curiosity and curiosity has been really important. Mm. You know, uh, what I've realized is that it's just impossible for me to be curious and furious at the same time. 
Like those two states cannot coexist, at least not, not ju- at least non-judgmental curiosity and being furious cannot exist at the same time. So if I can put myself even in these uncomfortable situations into a moment of being curious does a lot for me. And sometimes it's as simple as like, if somebody is being like annoying or being a jerk, you know, almost just in a very curious way, asking myself internally, of course, just what could have possibly like happened to this person that has sort of pushed them into this, into this path, right? Like, for example, like, you know, like somebody who is like sucking up all of the air in a meeting, right? And you're trying to get a word in edgewise and you just can't like, maybe that person had like, you know, like siblings that were always trying to outcompete and outshine one another. Maybe that person had impossible to please parents. I, I don't voice or try to, you know, try to find the answers to these questions necessarily, but I allow myself to be a little bit curious about them, like non-judgmentally. I try to be curious about them. When I can put myself in that state of, you know, curiosity, you know, I notice that my furiousness really doesn't have a place to go. Yeah. I mean, because to no small extent, curiosity is also the bedrock of compassion, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to, if you can truly access compassion, you know, like almost everything that we're reacting to in somebody else is a representation of some quality that exists within us also. And the more curious we get about that, the harder it is to say, look, well, if I'm raging against them or angry at them or then what in me am I actually raging against as well? And maybe I can open myself my heart a little bit. I remember talking to um, Sharon Salzberg a Hmm. couple of years back. We were in New York City at the time recording and she was telling me how on the way to the studio, she was walking down the Upper West Side of New York City and people just pass all the time when you're walking up there. And literally she was just sort of like, as each person would pass, she would just quietly think to herself, maybe well, maybe healthy. So she's doing a meditation, a loving kindness meditation, mm. just random lines to strangers on the street as they pass by. Mm. And mm. You know, she didn't know anybody. She very likely would never see any of them again, but it put her in a mode of being constantly open about people and also having a benevolent intent towards them that allowed her to access that on a, on a more ready basis when it was really needed. And I thought that was just such a cool and simple example of how to actually like manifest that in real life. I love that. And, and I've learned so much from Sharon over the years too. One of the metaphors that Sharon and I bonded over in the past is, is the idea of like holding a hot mug of tea. Mm-hmm. And just if you squeeze the mug of tea, you're going to burn your hands. You right? ultimately drop the mug. And it's so counterintuitive sometimes to the way that I think we may be conditioned, which is that when a situation is hot, when a situation is like, you know, rigid or tight, our instinct can be to try to squeeze it tight, right? To really try to like, you know, grip it and, 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 and handle it and, and, you know, deal with it. But oftentimes loosening just a little bit and having a loose grip on the mug allows you to handle it much better because your hands aren't burning. Your attention can be much more in the game. And that's been a hard, that's honestly been a hard thing for me because like grit and hustle is for a long time, all I knew, you know, for somebody who worked in business and tech, every time I would look at any type of, you know, self-help book, or I felt like I was listening to a lecture, it was all about like grit hard and hustle hard. And, and I did, but the fact is that like, if you look at some of the qualities that are associated with grit, it's always being on, it's being relentless. It's, you know, like all those are also some of the same qualities that are scientifically associated with burnout. 
right? And so like, yes, their grit and hustle are admirable qualities. And yes, there is a place for them. But if all you're doing is gritting, if that becomes your way of life rather than a tool, then you're putting yourself on a path that is not going to be able to effectively deal with situations because you're exhausted. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. A very mixed relationship with grit also. You know, a lot of the early research that was done on that was actually based on tasks where the outcome was defined in advance. Mm. And they looked at like, what did it take to get to that defined outcome? The reality is in most of our day-to-day experiences, whether it's entrepreneurship or relationships or whatever it is, the outcome is not defined. Like you define it along the way. And it's much harder to actualize the qualities of grit in that type of context. Mm. And like you said, very often, especially when you have so much ambiguity around what the outcome is, it just, you end up deep in burnout long before you would ever even get to a point where you understand what the defined outcome is that you're really even striving for. I mean, entrepreneurship is the perfect example. You have an idea in the beginning, you have assumptions, but you don't have anything until you have product market fit. And then like, then you're actually like, what is the business even? And you end up pivoting countless times to figure that out. So maybe like grit gets you to the very first like well-defined thing, but the reality of what most of us aspire to is not that. It's much more amorphous than that. And grit, in my mind, becomes much more um, fraught in a lot of real-world contexts. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. 
Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One of the other things that you explored in the book, which I thought I thought was really interesting, was the notion of seva. Um, is the notion that okay, so maybe this thing that lies inside of us, you know, and if we're talking about like how can we actually center it and let it out, how can we express it fully? It's actually counterintuitively this thing which is all about us is not about us. You know, I really wanted to root the book in Western figures, people who we may recognize as like. Jimi Hendrix to Dr. Martin Luther King to Toni Morrison. But every once in a while, I pulled in like a figure from the East as well. And Mahatma Gandhi was one of those figures who really grounded this chapter. And, you know, I get it because Gandhi is one of these figures who sort of every time I bring him up in front of a classroom, um, you know, I lecture at Harvard Medical School and I've, I've done this a few times. I can kind of feel like the collective eye roll in the room. Because it's kind of like, oh, come on, man. Like he's like, we're talking about this guy who is like, holy, you know, how is he relevant to what's happening in Western society today? But I think people are surprised often to find that Gandhi was very timid, was very shy, uh, had a very, very difficult time. He was an attorney by training who was so embarrassed, so shy in front of a courtroom that he literally sweat through his clothes during his first court case and abandoned the client right there and then. He ran out of the courtroom and could never be hired after that as an attorney. And that's the reason, one of the reasons that he fled India and went to South Africa was to go to find work. And that's when he started to get involved in apartheid and everything that was happening at that time and then came back to India and brought those practices with him. The reason I bring it up is because when Gandhi was asked, like, you know, about a fulfilling life and well, how do we start to kind of live this life? He said, like, people would often ask him, like, how do I find myself? How do I find who I am? And he would say very clearly that the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others, right? To find some way to start giving to other people and to start serving other people is in some ways, maybe the most effective chisel of all. We talked about Michelangelo in the block of marble and the sculpture inside. Sometimes that can be the most effective chisel is when you start to serve other people, you can start to come back into who you are. It also though, is a way for you to come alive in a brand new way. You know, I think like when I look at people who are exceptional at, I think, being in front of crowds or or having like genuine conviction that comes from a good place it's often not because they're kind of coming from a place of ego but they do in the book what i call the spotlight switch which is that before they do anything even though it might seem like the spotlight is burning brightly on you they sort of switch that to who am I really trying to serve in that moment? And they make sure that the spotlight is is on that person. In other words, it's about them. It's not about me. And I use this all the time, Jonathan. I mean, I'm like pretty decent, like in these conversations one-on-one, but I'm actually pretty scared to get up on stage and, 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 you know, speak in front of large crowds. But I do it a lot because, you know, as a writer now, I'm, I'm out there sharing my work and 
one of the things that often gets me worked up before I get up on stage, like gets me really nervous is, oh my God, like I'm about to get out there and they're all paying attention to me. And like, it's, it's, you know, the spotlight is on me. And one of my pregame routines, one of the things I do right before I get on stage is I literally imagine, I like make a little click, click noise. And I literally imagine the spotlight shifting away from me to the crowd. Like it's to them. It is about them. It is not about me. And I can feel the anxiety start to leave my body. Like I can literally start to feel myself calm. My nervous system starts to reset through that very, very simple exercise. It sounds like almost too easy and too simple, but it's literally the path that even somebody like Mahatma Gandhi took for becoming somebody who is too shy to speak in front of a small courtroom to literally leading hundreds of thousands of people with his riveting words and, 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 you know, speeches. Yeah. It's funny. I do. Um, I do my version of that. Like before I go out to keynote, I literally, I'll find anything that I can write back on the green room. It could be like a post-it note, it could be a whiteboard, whatever it is, like a little piece of paper. And I'll, I'll literally just write serve on it wow. just as a cue to huh. me to get out of my head and say like, I'm not here to perform. This is not about like whether I get a standing ovation at the end of it or whether like people laugh and cry. I'll take it if it happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's awesome. But at the same time, fundamentally, like people are giving me, you know, if you got a thousand people in a room and they're giving you 60 minutes of the day, that's 60,000 minutes of humanity that is being invested in that moment. And it can't be about me. It's got to be about, about giving them what they need in that moment. Because like you said, it really does shift something energetically when you do that. It just changes the quality of what you're doing. And my sense is, whether it's speaking, whether it's making art, whether you're, you know, like leading a team in a company, people feel that. People sense it and they respond to it and to you differently and in a way that often allows you to continue to do the thing more authentically. Yeah, yeah. I love that, man. Jimi Hendrix, he was asked by a journalist, why do you play? What are you looking to do when you get up on stage? And he said, well, you know, I, I would love to like turn the audience on. Like that's kind of my, my goal. And this journalist was kind of like, all right, well, so, but Jimmy, what ends up happening if that doesn't happen? Like what happens when you look out at the crowd and nobody's responding to you? And he's like, well, then I'm, I'm kind of serving the music. You know, if I'm, I'm serving them, and even if they're not responding, I'm still serving this music that I'm playing. And so there's this notion of like, if you're serving something, you put yourself in a place where it's not about you. I think for so many of us, when we make it about ourselves, we put ourselves on a path of burnout. When we put ourselves, we make it about ourselves, we put ourselves in a place where like it's, it's do or die. Right. And, and I felt that way when I was up on stage sometimes where I was like, oh, I got it's do or die. I got to, I got to really knock this one out of the park. And then your place of service, like it kind of in a very healthy way lowers the bar a little bit because yeah, you can end up having more fun with it. That's actually, by the way, one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is about work and play. And yeah. it's, it's the chapter that follows Seba, but it's, it's called Leela. And Leela translates into high play. When I started to look at sort of the Western science that really grounds this idea, what it really took me to was Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, author of Flow. And what Csikszentmihalyi said is that we have these two sides to our personality. We have our exotelic side and our autotelic side, right? You're not one or the other, you're shades of each, but there tends to be one that sort of is more in the driver's seat than the other. The exotelic side of you is really focused on the deadline, focused on the achievement, focused on the goal. 
And your auto talk side is very focused on the experience itself. You know, what do you like the day to day and even the process behind it, right? As boring a word as that is, you're kind of more fixated on, on that. And what the assumption was, I think in high performance, you know, in, in performance research was that like, it was really exotelic people who were leading society, right? It was the people who were like, had the goals and they had it set and they were like driving away at chipping away at these goals. And I think what was really groundbreaking about Csikszentmihalyi's research is he was, he was saying like, of course that, that does happen. Like there are exotelic people out there, but there is just as many people who are autotelic by nature who are fixated on the experience itself, like enjoying what it is that they're actually doing. You know, it's kind of like um, Alex Lowe, the mountain climber. You know, he, he was like, you know, he's, he's obviously like putting himself out there in these very, very dangerous situations. And someone says like, hey, like what, what's the secret to all that? And he, he, he said, look, the, the best mountain climbers are the ones who are having the most fun. Right. And so like there's this this blurring of work and play that tends to be this autotelic side of things where you're working and you're and, but you're but you're kind of playing as well. And it's a little bit indistinguishable from one another, which sounds a little like anti to what we've like learned. Like we separate work and play with the idea that if you if you try to fuse these things together, your performance is going to go down. Like you have to take it seriously in order to get great results. But what Csikszentmihalyi showed is that like, that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, the people who tend to sort of blur these lines between work and play, not only are they having more fun, but they're actually getting even better results. Yeah. I mean, that always fascinated me. Um, I remember going deep into his work and then also into the work of um, Kay Anders Erickson, who sort of like studied excellence and expertise and sort of coined the phrase deliberate practice, which then became really popularized yeah. by Malcolm Gladwell as the quote 10,000 hour rule, which we know now is like a complete... It's not actually what the research was all about. And I had, you know, like, sadly, Erickson is no longer with us. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to sit down with him hmm. and ask him some questions because I was really curious because he describes this deliberate practice as being hyper-focused on iterating on a very specific type of action or goal or outcome and is very open about the fact that like, he describes this as, this is not fun. This is grueling. This is intense. It's effortful. Hmm. And then you take the research from Csikszentmihalyi. These are people who are completely losing a sense of self. They're losing a sense of time. They're utterly absorbed in the thing itself, which is fundamentally the qualities of play. You know, flow and play, a lot of similarities there. Yeah. And I always thought it was interesting, you know, how you have just sort of like different theories, but fundamentally one is about one is about living a good life and one is about being the best at whatever it is that you actually are hyper-focused on being, but maybe they're not actually that separate. Yeah, maybe not. And I, I think that, that there's probably great case studies in both camps. You know, for me, I kind of came to this early when I was running my company. I'd started a company called Rise and we did one-on-one -on -one health coaching. And we would usually start working with people when they got to that point of real desperation with weight loss. Like they needed to fix something in their life or they were, or they were going to, they were going to, you know, get diabetes. Like they were, they were told by a doctor, you need to do something. And what we would do is we would kind of unpack like what they had done so far. What were the, what were the habits that they had tried to bring into their life? And in so many cases, what we found is that people had gone and done like paleo. Right. They'd gone and done like some, some like really rigid diet and they had gotten great results, but those results didn't last very long. 
right? And so then they ended up sort of bouncing back to where they were before. And now they were coming to us saying, all right, what do we, what do we need to do? So we work with like tens of thousands of patients. And what we continually came back to was like Kevin Kelly from Wire described this very well. He said that we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do our tasks better, right? But we don't spend enough time trying to figure out which tasks we want to do over and over again. We actually enjoy doing over and over again. So paleo wasn't going to work for, for people because they hated it. Like they freaking loved carbs. Like the, and, and I love carbs. Like they love, they love like pasta and bread and rice, which meant that if they were on paleo, every day was a slog. Every single day was a slog. But what we aimed to do was to find some habits that they actually didn't mind or they actually could embrace, you know, like, like for us, like one of the most effective tools, this will sound so embarrassing because I mean, this is to me, I always like, how was a business built off of something like this? But one of the most effective habits that we would help people build was drinking water before every meal, right? Just simply having a cup, like a glass or two of water before every meal, not only did it hydrate you and make you feel more energy, but it also reduced your hunger, right? And it was the kind of thing that we saw our people, our customers and patients, like starting to have fun with. They would get like, you know, specially designed bottles. They would, you know, put little like locale flavorings in their water. They would do things to make the experience fun and enjoyable. Did they get the results that paleo would give them as quickly as paleo? No, absolutely not. It was much more of a slow burn over time, but the results stuck. And the reason they stuck is because it was a habit they actually enjoyed doing. So I continually come back to that when I think about deliberate practice versus play, which is like, I think that you can definitely like put your nose to the grindstone and make it work. But I think you're taxing your willpower in a certain way throughout the distance. And the question is, how long will that last versus you can find what I call in the book, these high quality habits, these habits that you actually enjoy doing. They're getting you a little bit further to your goal, even if they're not getting you there right away, they're getting you a little bit further subtly towards your goal. But you want to keep doing it. I think that 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 ends up getting you to where you want to be and keeping you there. Yeah, so agree with that. Once the structure of the scaffolding, the accountability of the thing that forces you to do a thing that makes you better, but that you really don't like, once that falls away, it's over. Whereas if you do something that's 70% as effective, but actually you really enjoy doing it and your mind is engaged with it, you'll do it for life. So it's playing and playing the long game simultaneously. Yeah. So one of the things that you sort of circle back around to is this notion that win or lose acting, acting really for your Dharma brings you closer to yourself and unlocks a new sense of possibilities in your life. Like this is like the central theme that you keep coming back to. And you talk about other mechanisms, um, other, essentially eight different paths. We talked about some of them in this conversation, but you know, like fundamentally the notion that there is something that, that exists within all of us that is worthy, that is important, that we don't have to go in search of, but we actually just have to reveal to ourselves. And then the more that we can center that in our lives, in our work, in our relationships, in whatever it is where it requires effort, just the better everything else gets is a powerful idea that I think, and I think this is a great moment for that idea. So it feels a good place for us to come full circle as well in this container of Good Life Project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life, I think, means to express yourself, you know, express who you are. Because I think that 
the way that I look at it, at least, I, I always come back to sort of my, my, my grandfather's porch in New Delhi, where he first talked to me about Dharma and described it as like this inner flame inside of you. And the way that I sort of see this inner flame now is that either it's going to burn you up inside or it's going to light up the world around you, right? But you get to choose, but I don't think anybody really escapes that choice. And so as we talk about things like purpose and meaning, it can be sometimes tempting to see them as like these really flowery, nice sort of things. But I think the truth is that like it can hurt like hell when you've got this thing inside of you that's not being expressed. It can eat, it can eat away. And I think what mean, what it means to, to live a good life is, is really to in some small way start to bring that out so that you can start to light up the things that are outside of you. Mm. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also enjoy the solo episode that I recorded earlier this year about discovering what makes you come alive, what we call your sparkotype. You'll find a link to that episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.